0: What does it feel like just you being a teacher who loves what you do and you're passionate to know, not just at your school, mm-hmm. but across the country that a lot of people are leaving and a massive amount, a scary amount are considering leaving that we don't have reserves for. Like we don't have an answer to what's going to happen when all these vacancies show up going into the new school year. How does that make yeah. you feel? Very nervous. Very mm-hmm. nervous.
1: Welcome back to the next episode of Professional Developments. My name is Jim Mayers. I teach high school English in Boston, Massachusetts.
0: And this is Marcus Luther, and I teach uh, high school English in Kaiser, Oregon, uh, three time zones westward. And uh, today,
1: Marcus and I had a, a great conversation. It's a longer conversation than we normally have, but uh, we have a conversation about quitting teaching. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but we start off just talking about like not just our own grading practices, because we can get into the weeds with that and you'll hear it, but then also just like what's happening in our classroom. And I really am hopeful that people listening to that will feel the purpose and joy that we hold, despite all of our frustrations and worries that we go into about what it means to be a teacher in this moment, seeing so many considering quitting uh, and actually quitting and leaving the profession. And then also uh, kind of an addendum that we got to at the end, a really important conversation about when to speak up as a teacher and how to speak up and when not to speak up, uh, because I think that can cause a lot of stress and anxiety. And we really, of course, also are open to feedback and ideas and suggestions of teachers who've been in that moment uh, and their own experiences too. So feel free to follow up with any feedback along those lines as well
1: yeah for a little bit of context the whole uh, we started the episode with talking about our classroom because we've actually been getting some feedback from people who do listen to the show that say you know you guys started this podcast because you're veteran teachers so you should try to talk a little bit about your classroom more uh, which I am happy to do I can talk about the classroom all day long Um, so we did that it does make the episodes a little bit longer. We're, we talk a little bit about some of our classroom practices, a little window, and then we, we're tackling a larger issue. That's kind of the structure uh, that we worked with today, and I think it worked out really well. Um, it's longer, but yeah, I don't know. We hope, we, we hope you enjoy the episode, and we hope you stick it out. <laughs> Marcus, good to see you again, my friend.
0: Good to see you as well. Uh, head still above water?
1: Yes. Um, it was above water for a little bit and then it was underwater for a little bit. And then I was just getting above water post the exam grading, um, got my exams in end of January, all that stuff was wrapping up, launched a new unit in quarter three. And then now at the end of February, we're about to go on break. We have, we have a week off this week. So, uh, I, I, I'm obviously I'm really looking forward to that, but also it's just like it's extremely hard to build momentum, right? Like so much about a classroom depends on your rhythm and your momentum. and uh, I feel like that stretch just literally from like uh, Thanksgiving up until like when you're done with February break is so hard to keep to keep kids on track and motivated and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, one or, day spring, time.
0: or spring break for the, those of us, the 99% who don't have a February break. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, but, and then, and then you get to like the fatigue at the end of the year, a lot of times end of your tests, like there's a lot of stuff. So the, 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 every part of the school year has a rough edge. before we dive into anything. Like, I'm really curious, what's one thing you do like habit when you're great, you've got that big stack of exams mm-hmm. when Mr. Jim is grading all these assessments and tasks. what is what do you do do? like give me a picture of what that's like what's your space or strategy I think I mean I obviously you know I think
1: I both of us have the benefit of being pretty experienced teachers so I mean I grade I grade essays extremely fast and I think this was one of the things that when I was starting out as an English teacher I didn't really like give myself permission to do um, until later on but if I have, you know, I teach AP Lang, so mm-hmm. I, it's a college board class. I know the rubric extremely well. I know exactly what each part of the rubric is looking for. Um, and, you know, within 15 seconds, I can glance at a kid's essay and know, like, if it's, if it's most likely with like 85% accuracy, I, I can know if it's going to be a high, medium or low, right? Like the, that's the first step that does it instantaneously does it look like a high medium or low and you can tell that just by like is there indentation is there like varied sentence like you can see i the first thing i scan for literally is parent parentheses and direct citations does the kid just structurally have Mm -hmm. established a pattern of evidence right um and then i once i within that like 10 seconds i I closely read their thesis, I, I scan and I closely read their thesis. Is the thesis accurate? I think that's like the most important thing for, for my essay grading is, is the student, in dem- that one sentence is the student demonstrating like
0: a level of complexity that it's going to set them up for a good argument overall. Are you a music? Do you like music in the background when you a grade? Or are you a silence person? I'm trying to get I'm, the picture of what it's like uh, when yeah. you going through this process for people who have not yeah. graded stacks on stacks of digital essays.
1: Um. Well, one a lot of my uh, I I kind of vary it. Like a lot of the essays are handwritten. Okay. I I Apologize. make my but but let's we'll come back to that in a second because I think there's different approaches to both. But uh yeah, I have music on. Um, it'll be in a prep period, and I'll say to myself like. I try to grade in like 40 minute chunks. Right. So like, um, and you can, I, if you are in the zone and you're focused and I put my phone down and you're like, you, you, it takes a lot of discipline. Right. And, and that's the thing. Like if kids are coming into the room and just waving and like, no, like I have to have 40 minutes. I put some instrumental or, you know, I I'll put, right now I'm really into this band called the Dirty Governors. I don't know if you know them, but they're like a Southern rock band. Um, and I was really into them in like 2011 when they were popular. And now I'm coming back to them a little bit, but if it's like, yeah, I'll put music on and I just try to like extremely focus, hyper, hyper-focus on grading essays and crank them out of 40 minutes at a time. Usually, usually I can grade you know, I have about 60 AP Lang students, a little bit more than that, but I could pretty much grade the vast majority of their work in a, less than two hours. So it'd take me like less than three prep periods um, to focus on. Now that kind of doesn't count my AP seminar kids and their research papers and th- those papers I like, I read more carefully and and stuff but for an essay that's like for a college board AP Lang sort of structured essay and this is true for any as long as you know the rubric really well and you know precisely what you're looking for I think that's a huge thing that I have improved on is is at least trying to get grades in uh quickly and just allowing yourself the permission to just grade really fast because the reality is you're not reading your kids essays like a novel like and I also uh, and, and maybe you and I might have different perspectives on this I never give any written feedback like I never oh. write I never write any comments on a kid's paper unless I'm explicitly asked for them um and I can you know I can talk a little bit more about that I'll like annotate things but okay. Um, and I'll cross things out, but I, I just don't think I haven't found it very valuable to provide students with a lot of written comments, at least with FRQ grading.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, all, a few things in response to that. So, my go-to, uh, I don't, and I tend to do everything other than S grading at school, and that's one of the things I give myself permission because I kind of like my space. Uh, I, you know, beside the bed, like that, and really that that first hour, like that seven to eight PM. And I I just try to lock it off and I kind of just go into the zone. It's like, okay, I've got, you know, water bottle, instrumental music, whatever I'm listening to, I just listen to it over and over until I don't like it anymore just to get out of my system. I'm still on like Station 11 soundtrack. Nice. Last month. Uh, And I open the tabs of what my goal is. So let's say my goal is to grade 10 essays in that sitting or eight essays. Mm -hmm. I open the digital tab of every single one. And then I open the spreadsheet. Like I'm a big Google sheet person. So I've got like my essay tracker and then I've got my grade input. Mm -hmm. And so my reward is like I, I grade the essay, I fill it out. And then I put it in the tracker. It's kind of like this motivation, and then my goal is to empty all the tabs before I leave my station. It's kind of like the routine I've built, yeah uh, in terms of feedback though uh a couple of things this year that I've tried to be more efficient and I think i'm maybe I'm just not on your level yet uh but I put together an uh, annotation code at the bottom of like a lot of like the language stuff because I think that's your yeah. I agree it's a waste of time to type out oh this is a comma splice or this like right. a lot of time and so I just have a number code so I just do like comment number comment number comment number uh and I can do those quickly as I go I do, I do a written feedback explain why they got the score for each category on the rubric uh mm-hmm. and just like a quick explanation and then every student has the ability to email me for additional feedback. Right. if they have questions and then kind of giving them that option so i probably give a little bit more feedback it sounds like but you are right that especially with these types of essays which are shorter than like your low, right. if you're in like a 10-page essay that's not what we're talking about these are confined structured timed essays typically yeah and uh yeah i try to be more efficient with it but i'm all about like creating that space because if there is a distraction at any point I almost have to like restart the process like yeah like I have to go through I'm not like talking about like Steph Curry what is his like hour-long warm-up routine before the NBA games but like right I kind of have to start over to get back in that zone because uh, I kind of I enjoy it to a degree because I will say like it is really cool to see students become better riders as the year goes on and oh yeah it is like and we're gonna to get to this, I think, later in the conversation. Like the purpose in seeing that happen, like organically, it's just really cool. I I know I'm like at a loss for better, more articulate words, but year after year, it is just one of the joys, and it's these like little joys that really, uh, I like I enjoy that space. Like I, I yeah, I mean, some okay, I, not all the time. Sometimes I'm exhausted, and that's the last thing I want to do, but there is joy in that grind. And I kind of look forward to it when it shows up. I totally agree. And I, I mean, I, that being said,
1: I have two rounds of essays that are almost two weeks old and I haven't finished grading them because at the same, it was like the end of the exams. And then my, um, my AP land co-teacher and I were, we were launching letter from a Birmingham jail and we were launching like a larger black history month unit and we really wanted to get it right and it was like so anyways I I told the students like I I just told them like I'm good I'm gonna need a little bit more time than normal to get these essay grades in Um, but their their Martin Luther King essays that are coming in just uh, after break that I like I think to your point regardless of whatever your habits and your grading is, the point is about, you know, if the RA, are the students internalizing the feedback? Are they, are they taking what you're saying to them and literally doing better in their next draft? And for me, that was one of the reasons why I stopped providing like a lot of written feedback on the essays. And when I say written feedback, I'm like, you know the the traditional like circling and like drawing the arrow and say why do you think this or maybe this evidence like all that kind of stuff I just cut out um, and I'll say look because the college the, the rubrics from the College Board are clear right they'll say if you score a three for evidence and commentary it's because of this this and this
0: and then it's kind of clear it's it's it, right. it's intentionally loose and subjective which I have problems yeah. with but keep going
1: well in in place of written feedback i'll do a couple of things like i do i do batch feedback right so it's like if you scored a 3 and i'll i'll create a presentation for the day after the essays are when i'm done grading the essays right i'll say look for for letter from a birmingham jail in order to get a 3 or a 4 for evidence and commentary this is exactly what i needed to see and I'll also provide, I'll also like, I'll take the students' names off and stuff, but I'll I'll take a representative copy and print it out and make copies for everyone, and that one I will annotate, and I will say, this assertion is really strong, this evidence, right, so I'll take like one representative sample to elevate, um, but it's just, it's it's about efficiency, and the other thing that I would say is in place of that, we do. I I try to do a lot of like individual conferencing, right? So leading up to the essays, we have, you know, we're a charter school, so of course we have targeted student hours. And like, if you if you want more feedback on your writing as a junior in high school, all you got to do is ask. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of how my approach to the written feedback is. I'll give the class batch feedback. I'll give very clear examples of what scores what on the rubric, and I'll also conference with you individually and just verbally tell you here's why this assertion is not correct or here's why this evidence doesn't fit. Um, So it should really never a surprise for students when when they get their scores back or post their scores.
0: Yeah. And my students also know that the moment you ask for your, like, when are you getting your essay score before they've been given back? And usually I'm a pretty quick turnaround mm-hmm. on that, uh, that that goes to the bottom of the stack, uh, digital yeah. stack in my place. So, yeah. I, I, but I would like students also appreciate the feedback too. Like, it's one of the things I like, they like getting a lot of feedback. And it's so, again, I want to get away from this though, because we are in the weeds of the weeds uh, of like grading strategies. Tell me one cool thing or a hard thing that's happened in your classroom in the last couple weeks um
1: okay yeah (laughs) No, no no i got i i've i've got one that comes to mind um i have a student who is struggling i think this was like within the past three weeks or so there's been a lot but this moment sticks out i have a student extremely hard-working student comes to class every day she's on time she has her notes um she's she's working hard but a there's some there's some I think there's some confidence issues I think she feels intimidated by some of the texts um and she's just said like she struggles with writing stuff um and she's been disappointed with her grades and I don't know she's She's one of the students who, I, I, like, her whole, she's a very together student. Like, like, always her, like, her outfits are very organized, her binders and notes. And, like, she's, like, personally, like, very, very organized. Um, but I, I think that she's been sort of struggling uh, and working hard. I don't know. Just, like, I've been trying to find ways to, like, boost her confidence and, see some of the skill development but, but the other thing is that she's like a really really good singer and she has been performing at all school assemblies and she's been like really crushing it and she gets like standing ovation so she's like these other areas of her life she has a huge amount of confidence and talent and kids know and everything and there was just this moment in class where I was we were trying to explain like I was trying to talk about rhetorical strategies and how like speakers are really intentional with their syntax and we're talking about like what we are trying to analyze we're talking about tone right Mm -hmm. the way like a speaker's tone how they approach whatever their their subject is and i sort of just like i looked at her and this just kind of came very organically but i was like when you and i looked right at her and i was like when you are singing you are extremely intentional with the tone and the and the pitch and the volume of your voice and everything that you're doing in that moment is hyper controlled and intentional and and like really really precise um and i don't know she just kind of like she like you could see her like nodding and like feeling more confident and like making this like very live connection to something that she was struggling with, which was like trying to come up with the way a speaker's tone impacts their overall purpose and met, right. Like trying to like draw that through line. Um, I felt like for her, something like that really clicked when I did that metaphor. Uh, And I was like able to like, live very organically bring into class and then like all the kids like started clapping or not like they started like snapping and they were just like gassing her up a little bit because they were just so they love her singing so much um so that's yeah that was like that was just this one moment where it's just like that's the type of thing you just don't get in virtual instruction (laughs) And, and really meaningful right like that's a meaningful moment that I hope she'll remember and probably she will
0: no and like that that dual connection between you simultaneous like helping a student connect to the learning but also affirming who they are as a person Mm -hmm. simultaneously in front of their peers which is awesome so thanks for sharing that uh very cool i think sometimes we neglect those things
1: what about you uh
0: i've got one i'm gonna keep one in the back pocket in terms because it might be helpful later on knowing what we're going to talk about uh, so in terms of positive, so you're pretty familiar with King Lear, right? Very love King Very. Lear. Okay, yeah, awesome. So, and, and listeners, I know that this is yeah. two, two English teachers talking about it. So we're it's fine. There's a of no, Okay, so Lean King into Lear. We are. This is this is their first time as AP Lit juniors reading Shakespeare for most of them because of the interruptions to learning the past two years. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not a Shakespeare every year type of person, but mm-hmm. I love King Lear. I find it incredibly purposeful and the opening scene where they they distribute the property and all the craziness happens. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Like it's fine. And they like it. It's, it's good. It's scene two where we get to know Edmund who uh, because of his uh, being born out of wedlock status Mm -hmm. is not given the same legitimacy as his brother. And he opens up with this big speech about it and then proceeds with his plan to overtake Edmund. his brother uh, through deceit to kind of basically climb the ladder that has been denied to him because of the strictures of the society at the time. And we're talking about like this idea, we the our prelude class with our essential question of like, what matters more, justice or forgiveness? And that, so we set mm-hmm. this seed early on and we get into this class and we're reading about this. And I basically ask him at the end of the class, like, are you okay with what Edmund is choosing to do? That he's basically going to frame his brother for supping his brother who was the legitimate brother born in wedlock with higher status than him uh his brother who by no accounts had done anything wrong but also had done nothing to fix the situation or the inequity that he has more status than his uh brother edmund uh and i asked the students and they're like oh he it's definitely wrong but what he's doing he shouldn't do that to his brother so i'm like okay so What's the solution offered? And they all get into this huge forgiveness push. And it's like, oh, he should just forgive. And it's just one of those moments. And I'm not a sage on the stage type person, but where you just have the perfect comeback where it's like, well, what does that mean in our society if the only remedy for someone in a situation like Edmund's place is to just forgive and where they are not in a situation where opportunities provide to them. And you just get like pin drop silence, Heads nodding in the class mm-hmm. uh, obviously incredible opportunity to connect to letter from a Birmingham jail the next class and Martin Luther King jr.'s quote about oppressors mm-hmm. uh, and just like one of those moments that it felt really cool to be a teacher right. uh, and we don't the goal is not to put yourself on the stage where you're saying those things but sometimes it happens. And yeah. it's really cool to be in that space. And that's like my biggest class, like 36 students. Mm-hmm. And the energy was just yeah perfect. And I was just like one of those days, like you walk out of there and you're like, okay, did it, did that. Like that was cool. And now we're going to like shift back to like the grind of what that is, Shakespeare. Yeah. But uh, I'm really excited to see what the kids, when we get to the end of the play, like they're rooting for different characters. And this idea of they're really seeing a really a connection between the essential questions right now. what's happening in the play Mm -hmm. and i i feel really good about that and the goal is can we keep them on that horse can we stay with that not just with scene one and two but all the way through and that's like and with all the interruptions of learning and like the four-day weekend we're in like right it's hard and they've got a lot going on i know they're not thinking about shakespeare nearly as much as you and i are but it was really cool in that moment to see that come to life for them
1: i haven't read lear i think honestly since college i don't think i've ever taught lear but i you know as the english nerd that i truly am i took multiple shakespeare courses in college because i was very into it um what what i love about lear and probably smarter shakespeare people than than i will correct me on this but i was really fascinated in reading lear um and like a lot of other like I, I don't know the chronology, but essentially I was really fascinated with Lear, uh, the concept of the fool and the jester and like the relationship. Uh, what's the fool's name in Lear? The, the, the fool. The fool, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, this uh, this this concept that that's the, char- that's the only character who has license to crit- critique the, the monarch. Yeah. Um, and that's not just true in Lear, but you have this like evolving relationship with that like you like the fool is like mean to lear like mm-hmm. really mean but then you have these moments where he's um you can tell that he's like kind and like cares for him as like a person when no one else does and i was always really interested in that um that dichotomy of power of like the lowest among you is the only person who you can criticize who can criticize you if you're the king but also at some point the only person who will care about you because when you're going insane and you're like in the mountains cold and alone yeah. like that's the only person who's with you
0: yeah and uh truth's a dog to kennel uh quote the uh, the fool and uh, <laughs> this idea of the fool representative like a symbolic representation of truth and yeah. throughout the play and lear this struggling king who's falling out of not just his power but also his sanity this dependency where this kind of push and pull with not just the fool, but with truth, like yeah. doesn't like hearing it, but also needs it and watching that dichotomy uh, performed and also in the text and asking students, like, could you ask for a better, speaking of connecting today's moment, our society's relationship with truth. Mm-hmm. its Again, there are right. so many ways that this story resonates in our current moment. So I'm just a gonna... full nerd form right now, but I, I think I think that we should lean into it on this
1: podcast yeah. because why not? Yeah, I was going to say. I wonder if we can think of other aging politicians who have a disconnected relationship yeah. with the truth and sanity.
0: I uh, had so there was this <laughs> one moment in class. I, you know me, like I'm not. We try to keep politics out of our classroom, at least in my like. It's like it's uh-huh. it's going to be a distraction. But yeah. I made one co- like because you have Gloucester and then you have Lear. These two older patriarchs of the family who are being descended like. One student like repeated back to me. So like we have two people in power who are very aged and withering and clearly beyond their times. And I I just like gave him a look. I'm like, don't go there. Go there. Come on. I know. I know. I know. It was the first scene. We didn't need that, but yeah, yeah, it's, we're loving it. And also a lot of, if you are a succession fan, Uh, Lear is the playbook to understanding Edgar is Tom. Literally Uh Edgar takes on the disguise of poor Tom and uh-huh. comes back into a higher position of power by the end of the play. He's literally yeah. named. Yeah, yeah. He's lit. he's called poor Tom. Yeah. And what does Tom do this season without? I mean, pretty big spoiler, but if you look at the end of season three uh-huh. of Succession, I actually on a Reddit forum very nerdily made the prediction using the Edgar analogy that this is going to happen and was a hundred percent right. So yeah, Lear Shakespeare's great in the right moment. And I that's I'm just living on that high. So yeah. That's okay great, like, that's enough Shakespeare but I I
1: well no, I think you know I think we've heard just to kind of break break the fourth wall of the podcast here we have had some people listening to say talk about our classes more and like one of the things I think we should we, like this is important conversations because this is the type of stuff that I think I'm t- like yearning for right because like no one else teaches this in my school and like I don't know you need to make those connections but to make this kind of stuff transferable to other, other content areas. I mean, both of us are really excited about our contents, right? Like I can't think of another thing that I'd rather be doing that is like in turn, you know, setting aside the, the importance of like, you know, relationship with your kids and working with a team and like all that kind of stuff that comes with teaching I don't know, just like you do actually get to do something that you genuinely love and enjoy and for as like an academic exercise. And uh regardless of the content area that you teach, I think that's really important. So we I don't know. I we shouldn't we should keep doing it, I think.
0: Yeah, I don't think and I don't think you have to be an expert in your content to love your content. I don't know about you. I right. was a math like I was a math guy. Like oh yeah, SAT scores. Like that was the thing that clicked for me. I had to work really hard. I tell students all the time this to get good at English. But I remember the moment it flipped in college, like that, like that where it went from a grind of just what do I need to do to get the grade that I need to no, I don't even care about the grade. I just want to be mm-hmm. better at this and know more, and just that mm-hmm. hook into the content. And from that moment, I mean Professor Irving, shout out. I have told you that in person, so mm-hmm. it's not a surprise, but just like, how can you make that happen for your students? And I do think that being passionate about what you teach and the purpose of it is really powerful. Yeah. And it's also a really good, and I think we're going to shift to this in a sec. Yeah. It is a really good centering thing for a teacher, because if you are in the classroom and you are enjoying what you're doing, you feel joy and you feel purpose when negative things happen and they do, because Mm -hmm. that's the world we have 30 to 40 or 20 variables walk into your classroom in any period. And it's hard right now. And there's a lot of reasons it's hard. And those are justifiable reasons. But if you can anchor yourself in your own purpose and joy, and you have that, it's Mm -hmm. really hard to knock you off center. It's kind of like, like, like in a sport, like having that really good blocking position, like where you've Mm -hmm. got like the perfect stance where it's really hard to knock you off balance. Mm -hmm. If you can, Find that passion and joy in what you're teaching. One, the kids feed off of that and it Mm -hmm. comes across as authentic and you don't have to worry about trying to do the explanation of why this matters because they can feel that it does to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And two, it makes it just a better place to be for you as a person. And uh, I mean, again, why it's such a privilege to do this work, despite a lot of the criticisms we have about our profession and how it's being treated right now. Uh, I think it's important for people to hear that we both have incredible joy in what we do. And it probably came out in those conversations we just had.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think, I I mean, I don't have much to add. I think, I think that it's really powerful because I don't expect every kid to love English. I don't expect every kid in my classroom to like, want to be a creative writing major or literature major or anything like that. Like, of course not but i do expect my kids to love learning and 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 not just and like not for the grade and i think that's especially as you get kind of older in high school it becomes difficult because things become so gpa heavy and whatever but
0: yeah i don't know yeah i think something sorry Go okay. Something that I heard last year that it was really hard to teach online when we had that time online is that it was hard to not be able to feed off students. And I understand that and I sympathize with that and I felt it. But I also think it's really important to make sure that you to do what you can to put yourself in a place where it doesn't really matter what the student's reactions are. Cause those, this, I mean, I, again, I have a two-year-old son. I was just listening to a parenting podcast, but maybe yeah. think of the classroom and this idea that when they have a negative reaction or a negative emotion, like that's their negative emotion. They're not trying to be hard on you. They're just being right. themselves. And if a kid's not connecting with your lesson that day, like that's not a personal affront to you. Right. And like it, to build that wall, obviously if there's positive emotions feed off of that, but mm-hmm. if you become dependent on what the kids are going to walk into your classroom feeling, mm-hmm. that puts you in a very, uh quite a variable place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important for you as much as possible to walk into your own classroom with your own purpose and sense of joy. That, again, is pretty strong. Yeah. Because then if a kid says that comment, oh, I, I hate this Shakespeare lesson. Sure. shrug, and you okay. just let lean right into it. Right. And I really... I think part of that comes in context part of it comes in like building career, you know building your career and becoming more confident who you are as a teacher, and the support and affirmation you have around you which I am incredibly grateful for in my current role, but it makes such a difference, and what if we could make that true for more teachers, Uh, I think that would do wonders.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So this now is a good segue. About- yeah,
1: yeah, no, let's get like, we're, we're talking a lot about how much we love our content and what a centering thing is for teachers, which I think is the perfect segue into talk about teachers quitting. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, um, this is something that I think, this is, you know, why I've been, this has been top of mind for me. Uh, the past couple years. I I've got a little thing from the Wall Street Journal here, but there's like just Google teachers quitting and you can find any think piece that you want on any platform. Um, all right, here we go. Let's just dig into this because I think there's a lot to say. So the Wall Street Journal recently published a piece on it. Um, just for some context, they say the rate of people quitting jobs in private educational uh, in private educational services rose more than in any other industry in 2021, according to federal data. Many of those are teachers, exhausted from toggling between online and classroom instruction, shifting COVID nineteen protocols, and dealing with challenging students, parents, and administrators. Teachers started leaving classrooms in 2020 when the pandemic upended education and childcare, and the number of resignations from private education sector hit nearly 550 thousand. Between January and uh, January and November, federal data show more than eight hundred thousand resignations were handed in during the same period by people in state and local election or state and local education. And then finally, quits in the educational services sector rose one hundred forty-eight percent in that time frame, while quits in states and local education rose forty percent according to federal data. By comparison, quits in retail trade rose twenty-seven percent at the same time frame. And then, according to LinkedIn, the most the the most reliable job source labor data you can find, the share of teachers on the site who left for a new career increased by 62% last year. So teachers are quitting. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, we've had two teachers quit just in my school this year, in the middle of the year. Um, Obviously, I think, and I say that just as a statement of fact, um, I'm not, I'm not, I have, I have honestly no moral attachment to that statement because I, I don't know their circumstance. I don't know what's going on, but what I do know is that it makes it really hard when you quit in the middle of the year. Um, And I, well, let me just ask you, have you been, has, have teachers been quitting at your school or are they talking about it?
0: I think people are talking about how hard it is. uh, And I think that's a general sentiment across the country right now, uh, especially surveys showing uh, that that conversation is happening either explicitly or more quietly behind the scenes. Uh, Haven't experienced it to the degree that it sounds like you have in terms of our school. But uh, yeah, I guess I want to throw it back at you. What does it feel like Just you being a teacher who loves what you do and you're passionate to know, not just at your school, Mm -hmm. but across the country that a lot of people are leaving and a massive amount, a scary amount are considering leaving that we don't have reserves for. Like we don't have an answer to what's going to happen when all these vacancies show up going into the new school year. How does that make you feel?
1: Very nervous. Right. Because like I am comfortable in my classroom okay so like if if there is a fight or if there is I don't know just like other external things that 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 are really stressful and like kind of make I don't know something that's really negative that's outside of my classroom I feel like because of my experience and because of sort of my own decisions and my own clarity with the fact that I do actually just want to be a teacher indefinitely, like that allows me to not worry so much about that. I've broken up probably half a dozen fights, physically broken up probably half a dozen fights this year, maybe less, but, and I, and I just don't care. Like I don't, I, as soon as it's over with, I don't think about it anymore. I literally one time, A student was like, I was like holding physically restraining a student from as my second period class is starting, physically restraining a student who was screaming at another student, cussing another student out behind me. they were about to fight, and we had mul- like multiple deans and administrators there trying to break up the fight and I'm not saying this to brag or, or anything, but it's like, this is actually something that's a reality where um, I, I, I don't know why I immediately went here. I think I went here because this is the type of thing that would cause people to quit, I think, or, or cause like perhaps newer or other teachers who, who aren't like super decisive in teaching. That's not a thing that people go to work for, right? And so I think, like, this happens, a kid is having, obviously, a terrible, making bad choices, but also probably experiencing, like, some sort of, like, some terrible trauma or something that has caused them to, like, completely go off the rails. I'm teaching my class. I have the door open. It's the second period. And I look out because I hear the yelling. Kids sprinting. I just instinctually step out of the the hallway grab the kid and he's like he's he's smart enough to know like he's not gonna hit me or do anything to me but like he's fighting me he's trying to like push me off and get me away and I'm restraining him or whatever and the whole thing lasts like I don't know if I had to guess it would last like less than 30 45 seconds and they get him like I'm in the other classroom we get him into the other classroom it's a whole thing dean of students has it taken care of and I go into my classroom and all of my juniors are just literally they're literally sitting there I have the do now posted on the board the instructions they're doing their work they're just literally just sitting there notebooks open and they look at me and I'm like frazzled obviously but I'm just like I took a deep breath I got a drink of water and I was like okay, we're going to have class. Like, I don't have anything to say about that. I'm moving on. And I think that I, that I wasn't planning on necessarily talking about that, but like, that to me is an example, I think of like the collective trauma that a lot of, that a lot of people are experiencing in education. And it's like, the type of thing that would have made me in in my second or third or even fourth year teaching be like wow like is this like what I want to do for work and the reality is yes for me (laughs) it is and to me like people came up to me afterwards and were like I can't believe that happened I can't believe like these consequences aren't taking place. Whatever the consequences, I literally don't even know what the consequences were. I don't care. I just don't care. I hope the kid is, The he's still in school. I hope he's fine. I feel bad that that happened. And I truly, I just can't give it another thought beyond literally what I just said now on the podcast. And that, I feel like that is not a place where most other people are at. And I think for someone you ask, how does it make me feel? I feel far more unnerved at the possibility that many adults are not going to be returning to the building than like that, that type of like high level, um, sort of dramatic type of stuff, really, really negative stuff that happens. I just, I don't care about that. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's where I'm at.
0: I think it paints a picture of some of the contexts that students are walking into school with, because there were students who watched that and they're like, that's their environment too. And I think yeah. that's important to name and not just teachers. But then of course, for teachers this year, I think uh, a lot of those contexts have been exacerbated more than previous years. Like it's a hard, the workplace is harder and I, my guess is, if you're a teacher in one of those workplaces where that's happening more often, and not just that in terms of fights and altercations, but just being disrespected in class and not feeling like you can get the control or the support you need to get your mm-hmm. class going, because we know what that feels like. It's a horrible feeling. Thinking back to some older, you know, experiences way back when, uh, in earlier teaching, uh, for me at least, and it's. A lot of times it's that's happening because you aren't receiving the support you need or the kids don't have the support they need to be successful in a classroom situation and that can be overwhelming and my guess is if you're in that situation and you were listening to you and I banter back and forth about our passion and joy with Shakespeare right, right. now that can almost that conversation can be i mean i this term gets thrown around too much, but like a gaslighting type effect of, of like oh it's just about your mindset if you would just Find your joy and find your purpose. Everything right. would be okay. Like no, right. it's ridiculous. And I I, I want to be really clear. I'm in a situation that makes it a lot easier to find that joy and find that purpose than other situations right now in education. A lot of them. And if a teacher, for their own well being and health, needs to step outside of the classroom and has other careers that are better options, all more power to them. Like that's not the teacher's fault. That the situation has gotten to where it is in education right now that's kind of like my personal stance on it, uh, that we need to be better at making sure that teachers feel supported and affirmed Mm -hmm. in their roles, along with all the policy solutions that you and I have gone on about in terms of pay and time, and all these different things that matter a great deal. So it's that plus how do you make sure teachers feel that support and affirmation? Cause they're not feeling it right now. And that, right. how do we know? They're thinking about leaving or they are leaving. And they are like, leaving. Right. And yeah, I think, and I think that's the thing, right? Like I think,
1: um, I, I guess one, of, like I just, I see online, like I see all these like comments. I have seen comments on, tiktok and twitter and just like i don't know in my life like people have made these comments right if like if a teacher leaves mid-year oh how could you do there's like this huge moral indictment right and how could you do that you're letting everyone down all this kind of stuff this is just like yeah it it, it's really hard when a teacher leaves leaves mid-year like i'm not gonna lie about that like my My colleagues are picking up a lot more work now and it's just hard. Like it's, there's no way around the fact that it's hard, but at the same time, I try to like, think about it. This is a systemic issue, like in no other line of work, or I I should say like in few other line of lines of work, right? Like you, it's not a big deal if you quit. Like, or, or if you get a, if you like, I, I don't know, maybe that's like reductive, but like people there there's, there's not people in, in other lines of work. Like they don't, they can't like only find a new role in between January and or in between June and August. Right. Like, and I understand like, okay, yes. Teaching is different. Like if you sign up to be a classroom teacher, everyone, students, parents, most importantly, your colleagues are is planning on you being there at work every day from September to you know the end of May or whenever your school year is. But I don't know. I just I I don't have time to. To me, I don't find it productive at all to like pontificate about like about oh should a teacher quit? Like they quit. They quit and they are going to quit. And I think that's, a, that's the other big thing that really has me worried is like, there are, I think, just a lot of people hanging on. We're in the middle of like this great resignation and everyone, how can, and I think all admin must be really freaked out about this. You must be if you're a principal. Everyone's trying to find remote work. Everyone wants to move to Vermont and have a side job as like a maple sugar farmer, right? Like, I mean, maybe not.
0: Not, you know, not like... everyone wants to move to Vermont, Jim, but
1: <laughs> But whatever, like we are, we're living in a new world of remote work. And the reality is that's a lot more convenient. And I think like, I just really wonder about the extent to which people are grappling with how hard of a sell it is to a lot of people to decide to forgo that incredible level of convenience if you are if you have the skill set of a teacher you easily have the skill set of someone who can have a very comfortable living working from home like that to me is the fundamental problem that we're coming up with and we've talked a little bit about this previously with teacher pay and everything but i think it, it's a lot more than money like money is not the only thing that's going to get people in the classroom
0: yeah and i think to, to kind of encapsulate this for folks listening uh one there was projected teacher shortage before all of the last three years happened like we knew that we were going to yeah. hit wave uh going by bureau of labor statistics where it was gonna be hard to replenish the teachers outgoing knowing that we had a shortage going into teaching preparation programs etc so we already knew this was gonna be a problem then you threw gas gasoline on the fire in terms of how hard the experience within the t- teaching context was especially this year i think last year was different in a lot of ways for a lot of folks but this year has been immensely hard because of being back in person full time, and all the students bringing with their traumas, their mm-hmm. challenges, teachers themselves, I, I'll admit to it, daycare is incredibly stressful this year. And it just mm-hmm. wanted to, I like walking to school, and am like, oh, my gosh, I get to be at school for a full day and work and do my job. Yeah. And not have to be. And I think today, I'm not going to get a call that I have to go leave halfway through for daycare. Like, that just makes it more stressful. And that I'm in a great situation. And I love my daycare and it's Mm -hmm. still stressful. So the the day-to-day within the school context is more stressful. And also, here's the part that I think is affecting more than just the teaching profession. It has never been easier to get a job of equal or better compensation with your skills that probably is a little bit more accommodating, more flexible than your current role, whether you're Mm -hmm. in nursing, whether you're in education, whether you're in All sorts of other jobs so and that's a good thing for like the average worker to be more empowered but it also means a school system that was requiring on teachers almost feeling kind of trapped in their careers to Uh keep the numbers where they're at that's not the case right now so you have these outside contexts making it harder to keep teachers interior context pushing them out and we already knew this was a problem before these two things took place Uh this is why like all the exclamation points in the world about this issue and what it's going to mean for the next five to 10 years are deserved, in my opinion. I have no solutions, but Mm -hmm. the fact that we are not shouting from the rooftops about the problem that is upcoming and what it will mean is a major issue to me. Because at the same time of all this is going on, it is really hard right now as a teacher when you talk to students and you want to advocate for students and you feel like, I don't feel like schools can ask teachers to do any more than they're doing. No. But I also think very clearly, and this is not just my school, all schools, And we think about what it means to meet students where they're at, to provide equitable, responsive leadership for students in schools and empower them and their voices, I don't think we're doing a very good job of it. And I think we mm-hmm. need to be better. But how can you ask teachers to be better when we're just trying to get them to hold on? And I think that's my paradox of wanting so much more for students, yeah, but also knowing that if we push teachers any further, they're, they're already leaving. Well, I think,
1: I think it brings up a really good point about like, I'm not an educational historian, but by any stretch of the imagination, but like, I would be very curious to read the book about what it was like to be, what a teaching career meant in the, like throughout the past century, even. But like, if you just zoom out, like to, And this is not a time period that I would want to go back to on the whole. But, like, I get the sense that being a teacher in the 70s and 80s was a lot more comfortable, even just, you know, when my parents were growing up. And I don't know, like, I feel like over time, I just get the sense that, like, if you take... You know, I, I, it's a kind of a joke to say the eight-hour day of a teacher, but let's call it the 10-hour day of a teacher, right? It's just like every, every little thing that is asked of a teacher and added on to the teacher's day, it's always just framed as like, oh, well, could you just do this other thing? This like one extra, oh, just like, oh, don't worry, it's just a quarterly IEP meeting. Well, when you have 12 of them, and you have less than 10 hours per week, it's not just of prep time. It's not just one other IEP meeting. And obviously, the student who's at the receiving end of that IEP deserves all the support in the world. But like, there's a systemic level of like, I was told in August PD, like, oh, um just please or something to the effect of and i'm i'm really i'm not trying to like throw student service under the bus because they're they're also overworked and, and, and underpaid and everything but it's just like i don't know time is the only solution like i feel like over the past 10 20 30 years like these small things have been looped into the job of a teacher oh take this iep meeting uh these parent phone calls make sure your grades are my even my when i was in high school you know when i found out my grades every quarter at the end of every quarter teachers weren't worried about posting two grades a week like these types of things are just cumulatively added on over the years and it's just like i like all all, all of it is important but it's never been systemically made of, made feasible for teachers to do oh Just make sure you sign up for one. Like when I was teaching in Arkansas, like people were like required to do like a football game duty. And like, and I and I am grateful that I don't work, but like I know teachers in public school school districts, it's part of their job contract to like have game duties throughout the year. What? Just like without question, just like it's you're just expected to stay until 9 p.m. for Friday night lights once a, once a month or something. That's not okay. Like no one is sitting here challenging those types of assumptions and those types of work streams that are put on teachers.
0: Yeah, and then the one other factor that I think, especially in this year and recent months especially, that needs to be named is the lack of trust publicly uh-huh. in teachers and i don't think this is across the board but i do think it's increasing the level of distrust and skepticism about and just really the the generosity of spirit people are affording teachers in terms of assuming best intent uh and i really like you're seeing this cultural uh push uh against and i know some of it's politically motivated a lot of it i should uh edit that is politically motivated but people aren't seeing the best in teachers at the same time that it's incredibly hard and that might be what differentiates it from something like nursing et cetera. right now that it's really hard to be doing all these extra things and investing yourself in these students and then not feeling like people are seeing that effort as well intended and I think that the really hard part about this for me is when you look at studies Most people feel that their kids' teachers and their schools are doing a good job, but they're holding that belief at the same time that they don't believe that education and schools across the board are doing a good job and they're actively harming students. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that's what's so hard is that when people actually get to know teachers and get to know their kids' teachers and have those conversations, I know that's partly on us as teachers as well, uh, they actually see... The effort and the build these positive relationships, and it becomes a positive takeaway for all involved. But in the absence of that, I just think we're all, and probably teachers too, to be honest, we're just a little bit uh, empty of our cups of the Mm -hmm. generosity that we're affording others. Uh, It includes parents, I should say, even as I'm making this little rant. Uh, And I don't think we're seeing the best in each other as much as we have in past years. And I think that's a societal issue that goes beyond education. But is it having an impact on the experience of a daily life of a teacher? You betcha. I just feel like people don't and the way students are treating each other and just witnessing that, we don't afford each other enough generosity of spirit in this moment. In my personal opinion, to be a little soapboxy, and there are consequences for that. And it's one of those consequences is watching teachers walk out the door.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big that's a big shift for me that I've kind of made as I've gone on in my, in my career, like, all right. If an administrator makes a decision that I don't agree with, then I, I don't, I don't mind. It's fine. Right. Like I, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I don't have all the data. This decision doesn't, it doesn't work the best for me, but at the end of the day, I try, I try to make a conscious decision to say, all right, principal says this is going to be the best idea. She's smart um, this is not a deal breaker for me. So I'm going to just try to do my best with the system, even though I think that there's a better solution at the end of the day. Like it's really not worth. And for me, part of like, speaking of like your cup being empty, like I just, it's, it's, it's part of it is like a little bit of professional maturity, but part of it is just like, I don't have the energy and the capacity to care about certain like if if about decisions that I don't agree with right like if you want to tell me to do something and I don't want to do it I if it's if it's unless it's like flagrantly like causing yeah yeah, I just like okay fine I'm not arguing I'm not going to push back um if you want my feedback I'm happy to talk things through I'm happy to have a conversation with you but I'm not, the, I'm not the person who has a 360 degree view and I don't want it. I'm not, I don't want that. But I don't want that job. <laughs> I want my job, which is the one that I have.
0: Yeah. And we want parents and families and stakeholders to assume the best in us. We need to pay that forward to others, including administrators. Uh, yeah. if it's, I think there's a lot of parallels to that. I'm really, so I'm glad you took this here because I think there's some advice here. If you're a newer teacher or you're struggling with, like seeing decisions made that you disagree with, because I actually really echo a lot of what you just said, and I think it's at this point in my career I don't think I was always there, and I think this helps me be the best teacher I can be, and also feel positive and purposeful daily, even if there's things I disagree with. I think that you, one to acknowledge exactly what you said, we don't always see we get isolated or siloed in our classrooms, and we see one classroom typically the vast majority of the day mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean we see everything. We don't know everything. And a lot of times those decisions are made with information we're not privy to. And having the humility just to name that, that's a good starting point. Anytime you hear something you disagree with, and to yeah. again, assume the best in the people making those decisions. Two, there's nothing wrong with building relationships with all colleagues, other teachers, but also your administrators. And like I'm very grateful to be in uh, relationships with many of my uh, administrators where I have no problem giving them feedback on decisions and just saying, Hey, just some thoughts, some added context. I know you're going to make this decision or here's something. And Uh the moment I send that email or have that conversation, I've spoken up and advocated for what's best for students. Typically that's usually the framing that I would uh, send that email from, or have that conversation from. And then, like you said, I'm done worrying about it because Uh I can't control the outcome and having that locus of control, like I've given my feedback or I've advocated what I believe is needs to be the case. Uh And then let's go close the door and let's make a good classroom happen. Like, I really think that's the mindset. Cause I think you can go both ways where you feel like I don't want to ever say anything. And I don't think that's healthy, but there's a way to say it in a professionally mature way as you named. And there's also going too far in a, Assuming that you have a right to voice every decision and and everything has to be exactly the way you want it. And I think that's both arrogant and problematic for like a school culture of like consistency and collaboration. So that middle ground, I think, is really the earlier you can find that middle ground, I would argue, as a teacher, the more sustainable your impact can be. And then the one thing I'd push back on that middle ground, I guess, considering we're both white educators, is that I think. There are times when we notice that uh, a lot of other colleagues or administrators, and I'm not talking about my current situation, I'm just thinking over my career, where you notice that something's being done that's harming students, or that- Or you, or your colleagues. or Or your colleagues, and you don't want to give up your power or be uncomfortable by having that conversation. And I think it's important- To also acknowledge that, as white male educators, often we have a lot of power and privilege that we don't always see Mm -hmm. or name, and sometimes our silence is incredibly complicit in those moments. Uh, And I'm not saying that that means you get to bang on the doors and say everything should be a certain way I'm not in any way saying that, but I do know and I regret times in my career earlier on, especially where I didn't speak up as often as I should to advocate for others and for students uh, because I was worried that, oh, well, maybe the administrator won't like me as much or give me as good a ratings, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, when you speak up, it should be to advocate for what is best for students. And I would encourage, especially white educators to really kind of check themselves and think about, are there times where you are prioritizing your own personal comfort over what's right and i do think that happens quite often and in that case not speaking up is part of the problem
1: what's an example that can you think of any examples of times either like i'm just trying to think of because i can think of some but
0: i can too i can if if that's easier i don't mind giving one and again let me go back in the career because i worked at multiple schools so i'm not naming a specific but i'm just gonna give a hypothetical So if you know that another teacher is doing something or creating a classroom environment that is making students feel unsafe or unwelcome, particularly because of their identity, uh, whether it is a student who identifies as LGBTQ or a, a student of color, does not feel safe or affirmed in that teacher's classroom, and that's something that the teacher is actively causing harm by what they're doing, and you don't say anything about that because you're the newer teacher. You, you like that. That teacher has I don't know is like the cool kid of, in terms of the social dynamics at the school, and you feel nervous about what that the blowback will be on you. That's a real sense of being nervous is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that you are privileging your own comfort over what's right for students. And I know there have been times where, especially reflecting back, where I did not speak up in certain moments that I wish I had. And I think white educators, one of the best things you can do to leverage your privilege is to speak up for students in those situations in general, because uh, if you don't speak up, the students know that you're not speaking up for them. Yeah. And I, I I guess, sorry, I just feel particularly convicted in this moment, in this conversation to also add that addendum, because it happens way, way too often, and it, it causes <sighs> harm.
1: Yeah, I agree, and that's such a hard line for. I mean, that is a is it that's a hard line for teachers to know when it is the right thing to say something either to another colleague or to an administrator. Um, I remember, yeah, gosh, there's just I. This is just a quick example, and again, I'm I'm not gonna share schools and stuff but i've i've worked in a lot of schools but um i do remember right like i don't i don't know here's here's an example of something that i feel like i would cause like a gray area because like the example was there's a teacher who had a lot of christian imagery there was a cross there was a lot of bible verses um, she was she was deeply deeply religious, um, and that was like a very important part of her identity and I don't know if she personally ever really contributed to this, but I do know that largely within the community that we were in that the student was in that generally that meant not very friendly towards LGBTQ students and that there were queer students in the classroom. And I, I was actually an instructional coach at this point, but you know, the, the the student or the teacher who has coaching was like, I don't know what to do. Like, cause the, the teacher genuinely felt like um, that the teacher was, was causing harm was like saying really homophobic things and 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 i i didn't know either (laughs) because i didn't i didn't know either um and i said i i honestly forget what i honestly forget what my solution was for for the teacher but um i don't know i i wish it probably i probably should have been more forceful but it was one of those things where it's like okay who am I, an outside educational, I was working for TFA at the time, I am an outside educational services school, right, so, like, where, when and how do you, as an outside person, come and tell another another community how to, and, and an older veteran teacher how to do their job, I mean, those things are challenging and hard conversations to have, especially as a young teacher, but they are really necessary, and and I think are much more real in terms of like the types of ideological conflicts that teachers are navigating than like what we're seeing on the news with all of this mess about CRT and stuff yeah. that's just noise.
0: Yeah. And I guess my advice at this point in my career, if you're someone and you're in that situation, uh, and I just realized I had the wrong audio setting, so I just shifted it. So sorry. Uh you sound audio, oh, yeah, audio quality just adjusted (laughs) so my apologies uh but my advice would be that one there's nothing wrong with going to a teacher who you've heard something from students about and just bring hey i'm not naming the students you don't want to like if a a student you know talk to you uh and trust you don't need to like out the student to the teacher and saying like oh this student said this but hey several students in this class have mentioned and i'm not sure if this actually happened that this this is what they said happened to your class uh, i just wanted to like let you know and like ask kind of follow up like did this happen mm-hmm. like what are your thoughts on it I, just as a colleague who you know respects you and, and works with you i just i'm curious about it and want to like just want to have this conversation with you that's the starting point you yeah. don't walk in pointing fingers uh, i think right. that would be my starting point and then you work from there uh two If you're in that moment and you feel like you're seeing something, that's where having mentors and having people in your life, probably outside of your school system that you're working in, that you can say, hey, this is happening, what should I do? And people you trust who will hold you accountable to your own values, that's really important. And again, the solution is not shutting up. The solution is not being quiet. You Mm -hmm. might have that conversation with your mentors and they might give you advice. You guys, you come to a solution where it isn't you talking to that teacher, but being quiet isn't the right thing to do in the vast majority of these situations. I know we've gone awry from your point that I agreed with that the solution to problems with administrative decisions is not to just fire Mm -hmm. uh, up emails left and right and to demand it to be your way or the highway. But I just felt like I wanted to, Push the conversation here with this particular situation where, because I think a lot of people listening to this, if you think back, and this probably goes beyond education, you probably see things that are wrong at times that you feel are wrong. And I would challenge you that your own personal comfort in not calling out that wrong, oftentimes, especially as white educators, comes at a cost. And adds to the problem rather than just there is no status quo there you're either doing good or you're doing harm
1: yeah that's a good start like clearly and accurately describing the student impact yeah no matter if no matter the politics or the ideology or even the power dynamic of the person you're talking to if you are in education and you're assuming the best Anyone who is presented with this, I think, I am still really close with a lot of very conservative Republican teachers who would be appalled at the idea that something they said made any student fearful or like that their classroom was not a safe space, right? And so I think like if we're assuming the best and... If you, are coming, if you are coming to work as an educator, if you are making the commute, if you are showing up at 7.30 in the morning, like the, I, the vast majority of the time, maybe not always, but the vast majority of the time, I think that if you describe student impact, that is going to be a fruitful starting place because then you can align on like, okay, well, what's happening? What's the best solution? Uh, but they are not always easy conversations. It's really hard.
0: Yeah. And that's where, again, surrounding yourself with the mentors and supports you need, uh, again, outside of the, your school context, not just within it, to hold to make sure that you are living out the values that you believe in as an educator it matters a great deal. Uh, and not to assume that students don't notice your silence, because trust me, in conversations with students, they do. And yeah. uh, that would be my little uh, tidbit I'd add here. I don't know, like a great transition here. Uh, we've been well, going for a just, while
1: too. Yeah, I know. I mean, this, there's a lot to say here, but I think in it's interesting that we've arrived here, right? Because it's like, we're talking about this overall environment of teachers quitting, not just teachers quitting mid-year, but like a lot of people are planning to leave the classroom. And it makes sense because listen to the types of decisions that we are talking about, right? Like these types of conversations, these types of things, they don't ha- they just don't happen in other workplaces, at least that I know of, right? Like, unless you're doing like really complicated, I-, I-, I don't know. I'm not saying they don't happen like categorically, but like, I know a lot of friends who work in tech who are like, not necessarily thinking like oh what's going to be the blowback if I sit down and say that I think my desk mate is racist right like so that just isn't happening and, and I think the thing that's really tricky is like the confluence of the difficulty of teaching just in a regular year the stresses of the pandemic all of the ideological flashpoints that are sort of put on as a teacher all of this is like wrapped up in like your identity like I think teaching is such a personal thing for so many people that like at the end of the day do you want to sign up for something that is so deeply connected to your identity or that will challenge your identity and should challenge your identity in so many ways if you can work from home remotely Typing in spreadsheets, I don't know. It's an easy sell.
0: (laughs) And if if you're still around after this lengthy spiraling conversation that has jotted uh, quite a few different places, what you've heard, I believe, uh, if I can presume as much, is two teachers who are incredibly grateful and purposeful in the work they're doing and love just daily going to work and being in the classroom. Like that's holding that in one hand, holding also in hand the incredibly difficult challenges and contexts of the teaching profession right now that are very real and we have very strong opinions about that need to improve. And then, if I had a third hand, the very real moral obligation of this work in advocating for students. And I would again assert, especially as white educators in this moment, those are three things at once that you're not just juggling you're trying to like shoulder that burden consistently uh, and, and square all of it. It's like a both and both. And like, it's Mm -hmm. all true. It's all real. Uh, And that's what's going on for a lot of teachers right now, whether they choose to look at it directly or they choose to kind of try to look past it just to get to the next day, which is understandable at times. But Mm -hmm. if you're wondering what it's like to be a teacher right now, I think we've hit on three really important truths both the highs the lows and the challenges uh morally mm-hmm. that we're all dealing with and that's why we started this podcast in the first place because if nothing else there's value in saying this is what's happening. Yeah. This is what's happening.
1: All right. There's no neat bow that we can put on this and uh, you know we've been talking for a long time and i feel like we're only just scratching the surface but you said you had a student reach out to you with an email i think
0: this would be a great let's pin this and just okay. like throw a little preview yeah because i think we've kind of like like i'm like morally exhausted just talking yeah. about this no okay. uh, like i had a student reach out to me a former student just talking about like questioning like why did i get into teaching because this is a student who is considering going into education and is kind of a little bit of hesitancy right now based on a lot of the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I was just really curious, Jim, what your answer was to, if a student comes up to you and says, should I become a teacher? Should I go in education? What do you tell them? And I think we, sh- I think that should be a whole episode. then you get yes, branded sure. on here too. And like, what is your advice to that student? Because I think it's a really important answer, but I think it's harder to answer that question than it has been at over the last 10 years of teaching for me and yeah. i would love just to talk more about that especially looking forward because those are the teachers we need to fill these classrooms that are going to be empty based on all data that's been provided to us
1: all right that's a good start or that that's a that's a good idea we'll, we'll do a different episode <laughs> on
0: <laughs> yeah but i appreciate you for sharing that. and again for celebrating that student this for her singing i love that story so thank you for topping it with that. Yeah.
1: Um, all right, man, another successful episode in the books. If you all made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're a classroom teacher, keep up the good fight. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll stay in
0: touch.